Welcome to the Union March, Developing Officers for Command. I'm Senior Master Sergeant Eugene Christ from your 130th Public Affairs. This is the second episode of the 12-part series that will be published once a quarter. Now let's get to the content. Hey, good morning, everybody. How many of you went to the dance last night? I'm just curious, hands up. All right, uh, I hope you had a great time. I had a great time. For those of you that didn't go, you're missing out, seriously. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for people to get together, socialize. Uh, food was good, uh, music was good. We even had a little minor celebrity coming in to say a few words to us, which was really nice. Uh, it was just good to see everybody out and everybody having a good time. Um, so, welcome to Block 2 of the Pre-Command Officer Force Development Program. Um, so, hopefully you've seen that Block 1, the audio recording, is out there on a brand new podcast that uh, our public affairs shop has published. Uh, that podcast is called The Leading Edge, Developing Officers for Command. That's where all of these sessions will be recorded and shared. Uh, that podcast is available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I mean, we're legit, folks. Yeah, <laughs> we're legit. Um, even though you may have attended last time and you're here today, I would encourage you to go look up that podcast. Again, Leading Edge, Developing Officers for Command. Uh, just to make sure you subscribe. That way you're... <laughs> Locked in, just in case you happen to be on the road and you miss one of these sessions, you can get caught up. But, you know, again, just why are we here? Well, number one, we as the leadership team, we have an obligation to develop airmen. Um, I mentioned it to you last time. It's in the regulation. We have a responsibility to do this. But more importantly, it is absolutely critical that we develop officers for future command roles. Why? Because our airmen deserve your very best. And our airmen deserve to be led by people that are well prepared and, and ready to take on the responsibility of commanding their organizations. So that's why we're doing this. Uh, block two is going to be a little different. Again, I'm giving you little tidbits at a time. I'm only asking an hour at a time and uh, doing this so that we can deliver this content deliberately in little chunks and build upon each block as we go. This is going to be kind of a little bit of a scene setter for things that we'll do later. Senior Master Sergeant Moore, our Wing Human Re uh, Resource Advisor, uh, she's kindly uh, agreed to teach this block for us. It's going to be kind of scenario-based. You're going to be shown some videos and presented some information, and then uh, Sergeant Moore is going to facilitate some discussion for us. All right? Uh, should be really great. I'm looking forward to this. But this kind of part is a little bit interactive. All right? So uh, please participate and, and, and cooperate with Sergeant Moore. Um, I'm going to be here for most of the session. I do have to get a flu shot real quick. I'm sorry. I'm. I have been absolutely swamped lately. We all have to meet our requirements, right? Uh, and I am deficient in those requirements in that I need a flu shot. So I'm going to slip out once the clinic opens up here at 10, but I'll be back. Uh, but please, uh, any questions of me before I turn it over to, into Sergeant Moore's capable hands? Nope. 
Sergeant Moore. Good morning. I'm Sergeant Moore. As the Colonel said, I'm the Wings Human Resource Advisor, and today we're going to be doing... Can I say one more thing? First of all, I can't tell you how much I appreciate Sergeant Moore. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Um, well, you know, Sergeant Moore, she's, she's set to retire uh, from the organization this coming summer. Uh, we're really going to miss her. Uh, she's bring, uh, brought a breath of fresh air into the wing HRA role. Um, so when I first enlisted in this organization 31 years ago, Sergeant Moore, was a <laughs> Sergeant Moore was a recruiter in the recruiting office. She wasn't mine. I unfortunately got stuck with Artie Chestnut. Uh, <laughs> everybody's laughing. I know. Uh, no, I love Artie. And, but uh, Daryl McClung, Artie Chestnut, and Laura Moore were in the recruiting office at the time. And uh, I went into command post. I had to have a security clearance to work in there, which I didn't have yet. So I spent a lot of time in the recruiter's office. And, I got to know them really well. Uh, Sergeant Moore uh, actually l left the organization. She had a 17-year break in service. 17-year break in service. And then thank God she decided to come back. They uh, allowed me back. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, commutes to drill from Texas. I do. And she is one of the most engaged traditional guardsmen we have. Right? So you can't tell me that you can't live on the other side of the country and not be a fully participant and engaged traditional guardsman, because Sergeant Moore does it. She most recently completed a tour with Operation Allies Welcome, mm -hmm. a very uh, challenging environment. But I just want to say, uh, before she begins here, how much I appreciate Sergeant Moore and everything she's done. Can we give her a quick hand? <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll pay you later. <laughs> well, again, I am Sergeant Moore, and today we are going to be doing a series of scenario-based videos, and I will be asking some questions along the way. And it is a series called What Now Airmen? We will be focusing on the What Now Squadron Commander. These uh, scenarios were put together by the Air Force's PACE profession of arms, center of excellence. So they were all professionally done, not here locally. So we are going to start with family first. Maybe. like maybe after almost back-to-back -back deployments and a very stressful few years I finally got my squad in command I've been the AMXS commander here for almost a year since the change of command I found it hard to take leave and be gone no pressure to avoid leave I just feel responsible for the squadron my wife has been increasingly pressuring me to take time off for the family. She's given up a lot as an Air Force wife. This summer, Debbie planned a trip to Disney. This is a get-well trip for us to spend time together. She and both the kids have been excited about this and talked about nothing else for the last four weeks. 
This morning we were leaving and we stopped by Starbucks to get some coffee for our drive to the airport. As Debbie was going in, I heard sirens and saw the fire trucks and ambulances rolling in the direction of the squadron. I looked at Debbie. She heard the sirens too. And she was shaking her head as she was going in. I called command post and found out we had a mishap. A 2,000 pound practice bomb was in position to connect to a pylon and it fell and severely injured a young airman. My deputies on scene handling things. So does he leave or does he stay? What would you do, squadron commander? So what is the basic issue in that scenario? Please. I mean, the wife probably spent $10,000 here in Disney World to purchase the protection package, and now he did the <laughs> <laughs> savings on that strip that he, his wife and family need versus taking care of Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Has anyone ever experienced this type of a scenario? Not the bomb. <laughs> Not the bomb. <laughs> Where duty has been uh, required prior over personal responsibilities. I can remember a group commander who had a family event. I don't remember if it was a graduation or a wedding, but something, a life event that was required that happened to be on a short notice training exercise. And there had to be a decision. You know, do I do the, the one-time family event or do I come as a group commander to the exercise? These are, these are questions that, as a commander, you'll be faced with. We're now going to hear from the wing commander. As a commander, it's your responsibility to take care of your airmen. Now, does that mean you're in the unit 24-7? No. But when an airman is seriously injured, it's my expectation as a wing commander that the squadron commander should be handling it. If something goes wrong with the airmen and or communicating with the family, then the commander is going to be held responsible. I'm not sure why this is an issue for Jim. I'm a wing commander, a wife, and a mother, and I don't have an issue balancing work and family. I didn't struggle with it as a squadron or group commander either. Some things are inherent to command, and you just have to deal with it. He just needs to accept that for a commander, the Air Force does come first. They could slip the trip and wait until Jim knows what's going on with the airmen. They still get to go, just not when they planned. At this point in his career, Debbie should know the sacrifices that must be made, especially now that he's a commander. I, I wouldn't tell Jim how to command his unit, but if it were me, I would stay. This wing commander implies there are no boundaries to command responsibility. How realistic is that? It's not. 
Do you think the expectations are different for a female commander versus a male commander? Unfortunately, yes. Why is that? It's almost as if that either through societal upbringing or their own self, I guess it is, they feel that if they don't go over and above and beyond, they will be measured differently. And oftentimes, in some eyes, they are. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we'll go hear from uh, his wife. Ooh, ever, ooh. Wife. Why did the Could have been until after we left the base? As a commander, how will you balance mission and family? Stop by the BX. <laughs> At what point do we give an experienced, competent subordinate the chance to lead in our absence? It's really the measure of a good leader, though, right? Mm -hmm. If you can walk away and you can still enjoy your life and your family and things are still taken care of, it's better measured on him as the, you know, my group commander than it would be on that other person, right? Because you're supposed to be training people to lead. So if you can't step away, it really has something to do more with you not letting go of the reins and yes. not them not being capable. Yes. Yeah. In that earlier example of that group commander, he did go to the family function instead of the exercise because it was an important event. And it was seen as, as courage on his behalf to say, you know, my family is important too. Now we're going to hear from the weapons safety officer. 
I take my job very seriously, and I've dealt with a number of different accidents over the years, from very minor to fatal. At my last base, there was a mishap that was pretty bad, and the airman didn't make it. I clearly remember the commander leaving with the first sergeant and chaplain to go to his house and notify his wife. I'm pretty sure that was the most difficult thing they've ever had to do. Tell her that her husband won't be coming home. In the mishap today, the airman is hurt really bad. Especially because we don't know how things are going to turn out. The commander needs to be here. This is his job. So what if he misses a vacation? That's the price of being a commander. What is the extent of your command responsibility? How far will it go? Do you establish boundaries when you take over a squadron or a group? Well, you're, you're trying to quantify things that cannot be quantified. You know, there's a big difference between, you know, the exercise and a lot of life. Yes, there so is. Those are, you know, not comparing things that are equal. No. So, um, for a commander, even he, even though he needs to delegate, but he needs to be there. I think, you know, where there is a muscle life, you cannot. You, you have to figure out a way to quantify that things that cannot be quantified. I'm not sure there's an answer. I'm going to go back to Captain Hyde's point of like, what's the command comment? Is it already, are you taking over toxic organizations where your presence would be that morale booster, or will you be the distraction because now you're taking away from opportunities for people to step up and lead in your absence, and then you just follow up and check in throughout your vacation and say, hey, did you do this? Did you do that? Awesome. Great. You're going great. Keep pressing on. Mm -hmm. And build that confidence so, so the organization knows that you know, we're growing and heading in a better direction based off of what's going on, and there's trust within the organization to run no matter who's in the seat. Mm -hmm. But it's all in that command climate of, you know, is it already a toxic environment where your presence is there to make sure that people are going to X, Y, and Z because they have in the past? Or is it already an established climate to where you can trust it to operate with your assets? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as he's talking about, like, the fact that, you know, how do you quantify based off of your surveys, things like that, your ground units, you know, Putting all that in perspective, like, is your presence really going to matter or not? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I think I'm hearing you say boundaries. So even if it's a toxic versus a healthy environment, you have to, as a commander, come in and establish boundaries. Is that right? Okay. So how do you manage the expectations of your chain of command and still achieve balance? Uh, a confidence level without having to justify. Like, you know, I think that gets us in trouble a lot is if we start thinking about, uh, not that you shouldn't think about what people think, how it's going to impact them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, to the airman in the last video, I don't owe you an explanation as to what I'm doing with my family, right? I still care about that person who was injured and hurt. Um, but, or justified to your family, right? Well, I have to do this because they need me here, or, you know, justify. I think it, it's a level of confidence without having to justify decisions to different people. And, and I think that puts you in a better place than just, it, it, does that make sense? Okay. It does. I think something you have to think about, too, is the people under you are watching what decisions you make. 
So if they see that you're always going to put the squadron first, they're going to feel like they have to do that as well. So they might not want to put their family first if they have a similar situation. Or So I think as a, a leader, you have to remember you're setting the tone for the squadron um, with the decisions that you make. Yes. I think um, the conversation is already around different <coughs> situations. I think anybody at some point, regardless of how much you trust, like is going to feel responsible. When you say, right, this cat is mishap that's serious. Imagine what if it were 10 people, right? Everybody's going to have a line somewhere. And I think it is kind of hard to quantify what that line is. Mm -hmm. So you do kind of have to take it by case by case to a certain degree. Um, so it's, it's difficult. You almost have to look at the circumstance. I think it's important, you know, from a personal standpoint, he has that conversation with his wife, and you know, there's got to be a little give and take, I think. You know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Can I add one more thing? Certainly. You know, I'm new to the Air Force, and uh, uh, there is an inherent um, expectations, you know, societal expectations in, in our society that you could first, you could work first. And I would assume that translates into the same thing, probably more in, in the military, uh, that, that you put your, your work for first. So, you know, the expectations, you know, whether it is society, whether it is an organization, you have to balance that. And I think you need to know what others think of, uh, of, of you or those expectations. You know, it's, a, it's more, I don't know, it's a balanced act, but I think you need to know the expectations because if you don't meet those expectations, they're going to chew you out too. Yes. So, uh, but for me, what I noticed that the expectations in our society is work first. I, I would assume that this translates the same way in, in the Air Force that work is first. So I would assume he would eventually, in a way, do the right thing by the standards you know, that's expected of him, uh, which is going back. What well, I think when we watch the video from Master Sergeant Anderson, he raised a point where where the uh, airman that had died, there was the commander, the first chair, and the chaplain there. And you know, if you were to go back and uh, talk to the family afterwards, you know, the wife could go to uh, the other wives uh, and say, you know, your husband came and talked to us. It was very reassuring that he sacrificed a big trip. So sometimes, even if you do it after the fact, you're like, yes, I made a huge sacrifice. I missed the trip. Now my family's in shambles. That person may go to the other person and be like, no, your husband, you know, it probably was a, a decision that was impactful, but it was also helpful for us. So it, we sometimes we make decisions that we're not aware of that can impact other people as well as our own. But sometimes, some people do appreciate even a phone call, or some people do appreciate the hands-on approach hmm. that you may not see, or the subordinates may not see that you're doing it, but you're there, even though you're not. Now we're going to hear from a longtime friend of Jim's. 
I sure hope Jim and Debbie are already at the airport. We just had a mishap in Jim's squadron, and if I know him, he won't leave when he hears about it. I guess I can't really blame him. When I was commander, I definitely would have canceled the trip. I mean, I couldn't help it. I have a few regrets, lessons learned by command, I guess. My biggest regret is letting my command interfere with my family time. You go into command with the best of intentions to, to balance work and family. But there's always so many issues. So I told myself that I would only handle the big issues. Before I knew it, every issue was a big issue. And I was never home. My divorce was final a year ago today. I never appreciated that I had great airmen working for me. And I was only depriving them of leadership opportunities. I was being selfish. And it cost me my family. If I could do it all over again, the one thing I would do differently is set boundaries for family time. There's that word again, boundaries. So do you think it's possible to have no regrets on either side of this equation? No. So what does that tell you about your command responsibilities? It's hard. It is hard. No it matter is. which way you go, if you go on vacation, somebody's going to complain that you went. And right. if you don't go on vacation, people are going to complain that he did this to his family yet again. Right. So I was just I mean, people are complaining. Sorry, sorry for the there, there is no right answer for that. I think a fatality might push it over the edge, but um, um, I, I really think that if he has the faith in his vice that he says he does, mm -hmm. this is the time to let it shine for that vice and for that master sergeant. Mm -hmm. I was going to say it's not even just that people are complaining, it's not the external thoughts that are coming in. It's your own brain, and it's your own, where are my priorities? And you can see, okay, well, there's a good, there's good reasons to stay, there's good reasons to go, and how do I reconcile those to myself first, and then try and reconcile them with family, leadership, subordinates, you know, and all that. It's not just their views in, it's your view out. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So it talks about setting the boundaries. If you go over and take over command, have you thought about consistency? Because sometimes the way you approach situations and how consistent you are, that's actually more of a strength than what you think. You all live on checklists, right? So even if you have, have you done this? Have we tried this? Have we done that? You can still turn over that leadership responsibility to help you prioritize better. Just throwing out there. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. Now we're going to hear from the senior perspective. I think when a squadron commander puts his family above his mission, he's doing exactly the right thing if he does it at the right time. I used to tell wing commanders and squadron commanders and any leader that I was in the presence of, one day your job's going to end and one day your family ends. Make sure your job ends before your family does. Take the time 
to be responsible to your spouse, to your kids, make them as healthy as you possibly can because when you have to go TDY for an extended period of time or you're away from them, you want them as healthy as they can be so that they're that way when you return. So that video brought up a lot of things for us to think about with command. Now we're going to look at another scenario. Change the form. I've been squadron commander here for 18 months, and I know my people very well. Last week I completed two OPRs and sent them up to the group. They weren't very difficult because I had very specific and concrete results to write about. And that's not always been the case. But now, I have a rather troubling issue. Yesterday, Colonel Weller, the group commander, came by my office. He said he was just making around, talking to all the squadron commanders. But mostly, he wanted to talk about Major Morgan. One of the OPRs I completed last week was on Major Morgan. In my rack and stack, I placed him last. But Colonel Weller must have said, Morgan's your number one, right? At least four or five times. I danced around it a bit. I tried to change the subject, but he kept coming back to Major Morgan and the great things he had done for the group. I just didn't find him significant, but I didn't challenge him. He didn't outright say change his OPR, but I sure got the message. And now both OPRs appeared back on my desk. It's clear what Colonel Weller wants. Steve Morgan used to work for Colonel Weller back in the day. I know they've known each other for quite a while. I didn't know they had this kind of relationship. And I've heard what happens when you don't take Colonel Weller's suggestions. So do I change the OPR? What would you do? It's like, what would you do? So what is the basic issue in this scenario? Command influence. Favoritism. Yeah. Yeah. Can anyone give an example of when this has happened to them or this issue? <laughs> we have a very quiet group now. I am. Okay. I'm a civilian provider. I wrote a report based off my clinical expertise, my license training and everything. I got told to change it. And I said no. I'm not changing it because I wrote it based off what I, the facts were. Thank you. Now we're going to listen to the group commander. I know Mark has already completed the OPRs and I absolutely would not direct him to make any changes in the ratings or comments of his subordinates, but I just wanted to stop in and talk to him about some of the things that Major Morgan has accomplished outside the squadron that I think he didn't know about. I know that Major Morgan is destined for great things in the Air Force, but he never wants to brag on himself. So I just told Mark a little about Major Morgan's involvement in a couple of different wing projects I know that he worked on. Now, he may not have been a key player, but in my opinion, he certainly contributed. And that breadth of experience is really important in building an overall leader and commander. Now, I trust that Mark will take this new information and decide for himself if he wants to make any changes. 
but at least he'll have the complete picture. So does this group commander believe he is directly influencing the decision of the squadron commander? Or do you think he's just providing more information to the big picture? There's, there's nothing wrong with the group commander providing details to the squadron commander that they may not have known about. Um, but as long as they're not trying to influence the ultimate out, outcome there. Mm -hmm. So I don't see anything wrong with what the group commander is doing. If he's really truthful in what he's saying, that it's up to the squadron commander to make the right decision. Sounds like he has his opinion, but as a group commander, he can, you know, he can change it when it gets to his level. He disagrees with the squadron. Yeah. Yeah. And my question how the group commander delivered his message to the squadron commander, because it seems like what the squadron commander interpreted wasn't what that video just now portrayed. That's right. a good point. So maybe a group commander should say, hey, have you heard about what this airman's done outside of here? Yeah. Something like that, right? Okay. Yeah, because my next question is, how likely is it that the group commander knows the relative performance of a squadron commander's subordinate? Well, probably does not because he's no longer under his command. Right. Right. Now we're going to hear from a squadron subordinate, Captain Jones. I just heard from one of the other guys in the squadron that Colonel Weller was in with our commander talking of Major Morgan like he's his number one officer. And no one in the squadron would believe that. He's up by the group in the wing more than he's ever here. In fact, there's jokes going around that he wasn't actually assigned to the squadron. Now, I don't know who the bosses number one, two, and three are, but this is a joke. I know there are a couple OPRs due, and PRFs are soon to follow, but is this how the system is supposed to be? No matter how hard you work, it all comes down to who's your sponsor? I'd like to believe Lieutenant Colonel Hall has the personal integrity and backbone to stand up to the pressure and do the right thing. So how difficult is it for you to come to a decision when doing the best for the Air National Guard conflicts with what's best for your career? I think um, in this scenario, it's a little cheesy, but there's a phrase that feedback is a gift, right? So um, you could be doing this member of a good service by giving them the feedback, the realistic feedback of this is your this is your perception, right, within the group. This is where I see your detriments and, and things of that nature. Uh, to only accelerate them, right? But frame it like that. Um, so that way you can give the not stellar rating, right, but give them the the accurate feedback only to improve them. And I think if you phrased it like that to the member and to the group commander, then it comes off with a positive spin versus just a negative spin. Yes. Of a local mm -hmm. 
Here we go. No. Because, oh. I'll say, as well as you've got to grow where you're planted. So if you can sign up the squadron, do squadron duties. Now, you may get a special sign, you may get a special task, but that should be working with the squadron commander so they're aware of your duties over there and, and have feedback from that based off of different things. So, I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing that he's helping the group with wing or, or additional duties, but was that a sign or is that the stuff he's doing because he's trying to be somewhere that he doesn't need to be to be involved in tasks that aren't necessarily his primary responsibility duties? And because of that, it's fracturing relationships and squadron because you're not doing your work, so they have to take that lock up. And, you know, it's trickling down, as that captain kind of pointed out, like, you know, we all see the big picture, and let's see actually how this plays out. And you know, right now it's not setting up well for the squadron commander. Too. Right. I think the squadron commander can have a conversation with the group commander, though, and let them know why they rated that person the way that they did. And maybe the, the group commander doesn't understand that that person's not performing well in the squadron, and then if they do have a good relationship, the, the group commander and that individual, maybe he could also provide some back to that member. Mm -hmm. But I mean, hopefully they would have that, that working relationship where they, the squadron and the group commander could have an honest conversation about the situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now we'll go here from another squadron commander. Mm -hmm. Harrison. No one is going to argue that pressuring a subordinate to change a performance report or any other command judgment is okay or acceptable. If we lived in a world where everyone had perfect integrity, then situations like this would never come up. But we don't. In reality, the boss's opinion always influences your decision. It's just human nature. Sometimes looking the other way, that's the grease that makes the system work. There are no absolutes in this world. I think Mark is a great leader, but he has to understand that this is how the game is played. Is a single OPR for a subordinate worth falling on your sword for? I don't think so. Morgan is my number one. <laughs> so at what level of playing the game is acceptable before you consider it a violation of your integrity? It kind of depends on you. Mm -hmm. If he lets it slide this time, it's not worth sacrificing my career over one OPR. Where does he draw the line? Where's that boundary? Mm -hmm. You can say, well, this is it. This is the one, and then it happens next year. That's it. I'm drawing the line, and I'm standing up to the boss. I think there's better ways to handle it, but it's, it's different for everybody. That's right. Uh, that last gentleman was going, you're right. This is, he's right. This isn't a world of absolutes. We, we all have faults, and we've all done things we regretted, hopefully small regrets. But we have to draw a line somewhere. We do. Well, I feel like if he makes that decision and he ranks that person number one, you're not only affecting yourself, but you're also affecting the squadron because people are going to notice that. And you're going to hurt the morale of your squadron. They're going to be like, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. It just matters who you know. And I mean, that happens a lot. But I mean, you're not just hurting yourself. You're not just helping yourself. You've got to think about everybody else. That's that's watching them as well. Exactly. Especially as the commander. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hearing lead by example. Is that right? Lead by example. <laughs> Even if it's worth your career. Even if it's worth your career. That's where everyone has their own line. 
where they draw the line. Yes. And that is something we have to determine within ourselves. There's additional writer comments. Yes. Yeah. You can do what he wants. Yes. And I can still put what I need to in there. You can. Yeah. So you just put it back on him? Uh-huh. If you want to rate them some way differently than I did, you must see such different, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. We have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. So his perspective maybe is that he's rated one. It's just a perspective, right? And mm -hmm. if you get to work closely with that person, and you're not rating him one, two, or three, right? But he thinks that he's a one. Mm -hmm. That's okay. That's what that's for. Right. It doesn't mean that I have to agree with that. Mm -hmm. That's right. the check and balance on an OPR. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to hear from the first sergeant in that squadron. As a first sergeant, I am very familiar with the stratification process that we use when writing EPRs, OPRs, or PRS. And I've seen firsthand what happens to the morale <coughs> unit when a leader, officer, or enlisted abuses the process and rank order people based on personal relationships or bias or whatever. If a commander bows to outside pressure when rating a subordinate, then that sets the example, and others will follow his or her lead. Then how can a commander look any subordinate in the eye and question how they rate someone? They can't. Typically, we don't hear about it at the time, but we do hear about it during climate assessment when there are complaints about unfairness in the rating system. The commander has to stand up for what is right and not bow to the pressure. So when making tough decisions, do you ever stop and think if your actions are being good or bad examples for those that you lead? As a commander, every decision you make will be seen by those under you. You are the example. Now we're going to hear the senior perspective on this scenario. I think there are two ways to, to go on this. There is obviously the integrity piece with our core values that uh, you know, if you know that something is uh, truthful, then you need to attest to that in a true and straightforward manner. But I also think there's a piece of this that deals with the connection between authority, accountability, and responsibility. And it's really one of the important lessons that squadron commanders need to both understand and embody. They'll have responsibility for certain things. They'll be given authority for those things. And they have to be ready to be held accountable for those things. So you might get advice from a higher level commander. But at the end of the day, the authority and the responsibility in this case is at the squadron commander level and we're going to expect that the commander will exercise that authority in a way that they're comfortable with because ultimately they're going to be accountable for it and um, I think in association with that 
even though this may be a decision that seems counter to what the boss, if you will, wants, uh, if you make the decision, go back to the boss, sit down and tell them why you made it uh, based on the facts that you know. Nine out of ten or more of the people that I know would accept that, expect that uh, of the commander, and uh, probably give you credit for it versus being known as somebody that can be pushed around on something that's uh, fairly uh, straightforward like this is. Mm -hmm. I kind of lined right up with what Major Sherrod was saying to do. <laughs> yes. So you can see that the commander job has many aspects. And there will be many uh, cogs in this wheel. And they're always different. But your decisions affect so many. And I think due to time, that's going to be my last scenario for today. And Colonel Chard is going to wrap up today's training. Hey, thank you, Sergeant Moore, for leading us through, you know, these scenarios. You know, I, I told you in block one when we met that there are very few perfect decisions. There are very few easy decisions that commanders make. There's always, you know, trade-offs and balancing acts. Uh, I'll talk about the second scenario first. Uh, there's a term known as undue command influence. And higher level commanders have an obligation to guard against undue command influence, especially when it comes to things like discipline, promotions, evaluations, etc. There are senior leaders in the West Virginia National Guard in the past, not today, in the past who have gotten sideways regarding undue command influence involving evaluations. So it does happen. I applaud Major Sherrod, Captain Hypes, for astutely looking at a couple different aspects of this. And one is a squadron commander who really believes that they have a good picture of how their subordinate has performed during that rating period. And having that conversation with that group commander is absolutely important. Also, push come to shove, if you have differing opinions than your group commander on how subordinates should be rated, that higher level rater has an opportunity to provide input that can be completely different from that squadron commander. It is true. Uh, these situations can be resolved. Uh, I will say, and I mentioned this last week, it's a commander's responsibility to maintain a healthy command climate. You heard what the captain said about a perception that this other officer was receiving favorable treatment based upon a personal relationship, maybe not a personal relationship, but a, uh, a more close relationship with a group commander. So that perception is already existing in the unit. And if the squadron commander just caves to what the boss wants and names that person, they're my number one stratified uh, major, then all they're doing is reinforcing that perception. And it's just going to get worse. 
People will lose trust in that squadron commander. They will lose faith in the organization. And they will suffer as a consequence. So, yes, there are times when you have to um, stick up for what you believe to be true. Uh, so thank you to both of you for really pulling that out. But I love the comments. It's awesome. This is great. And I love your all's thought process. So I'll go back to the first scenario, and I'll tell you a little situations I was in. Um, there's only been one time in my career, I mean, I've deployed a lot, but there's only been one time where I had no notice of a deployment, and I did not know when I was coming home. And that was Hurricane Katrina. And I get a phone call. My wife is seven months pregnant. We're building a house. Um, we have a young, our daughter at the time was a toddler. I was literally up in the rafters of the house that we were constructing. Yes, Nathan, it's the house we live in now. And Nathan's my neighbor, by the way, so sorry. <laughs> he, he lives in the same neighborhood. But I'm running electrical wire up in the roof of the house, and I get a phone call. And it's probably about 6 o'clock in the evening, and the phone call was, hey, Hurricane Katrina is bearing down New Orleans. It's going to be catastrophic, and you need to be on the road in the morning no later than 0700 headed to New Orleans. I was the OIC of a deployable communications kit at the time. Um, now they're now known as GIST kits. They weren't known as that before. Now you can't, I mean, there's, I think, Last count was close to 100, maybe more just kits in the guard. But back then, there was only 10. It was very vital that this new capability was made available for this hurricane. And I was one of the only officers trained to lead a team. Um, so what do I do? I got a seven-month pregnant wife. They're asking me to go. What do I do? Um, I will tell you I left. And I went to Hurricane Katrina. Um, but there were a lot of things that were in the background that helped shape that decision making. Because believe me, I did think about it. And that was, one, we were living with my wife's parents while we were building the house. You ever lived with your in-laws before? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but she did. She had a very strong support system around her. We, utilizing the rest and the extended part of our family, had a very strong support system around us. So my in-laws helped support me to be able to go do my job by making sure that my wife and my daughter were taken care of. So that helped me make a more informed decision. If we were in a city where we didn't know anyone and we didn't have that support network and family wasn't available, I may not have made the same choice. So it is very situational in those circumstances. There are times when, as a commander, you are going to have to make decisions that you know is going to dis disappoint your spouse and your family. They are going to have to sacrifice at times. But it does need to be situational. And you need to maintain the health of that family unit because that is a very strong support <coughs> base for you. And if you are strong and you have that strong support base under you, you're going to be able to do a more effective job. Um, you're going to be less stressed. 
uh, etc. So, you know, it, it is very situational in those circumstances. I know of, too, another situation where um, in a, the, the comment about, hey, our culture is work comes first. It's a great comment. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, that we have a tendency to place work over family at times. But we, we all suffer as a result if we don't strike the appropriate balance. And, you know, one other thing that I would say when it comes to taking care of yourself as airmen, uh, actually Major Porter and I had this conversation last night at the Christmas dance. He made an observation talking about Colonel Priest and how much Colonel Priest, how hard he works, and I'm telling you, the man's a machine at times. You ought to see him in the office. He comes in, he's usually the first one there, he gets to work, He's, those keys are clacking, you know, even, even when he knows that he has a flight coming up, he's got the books out and he's prepping, okay? The guy's a machine, but he's also in the gym at 1500 to get that workout in. Uh, matter of fact, if you go to the gym on this base at 1500, you're apt to see Colonel Priest, myself, and Chief Williams all in the gym. Am I wrong, Julia? Yep, because I see her there as well. My point with that is, is it's about self-care too, right? Make sure that you take time for yourself. Uh, I think Major Porter made mention of, gosh, he has all the best intentions of hitting the gym on a given day. Then all of a sudden he looks at his watch and it's two minutes to 1600. And he's like, oh crap, it got away from me again. Schedule it. Make it a part of your routine. You will be healthier for it. More importantly, you'll set a wonderful example for the airmen underneath you that you expect them to take advantage of that hour a day that they're given during the week to go work out. If someone wants to take an hour on a drill weekend and the schedule allows and they want to go work out, they can do that too. That's a wonderful example for you to set. It's also important for you to take vacations. Hey, I'm going to take a week off from work. Family and I, we're going to go to Disney World or wherever. Yes, Disney World is engineered to take your money from you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that comment too. That was great. But you have to take time for yourself and trust that your subordinates in your organization can run the show while you're gone. And things will happen while you're gone. And sometimes it is such a bad event such as the death of an airman, when you've got to curtail what you're doing and come home. And sometimes you just need to let your folks deal with it when it's not something as severe. So again, very situational. There's no right or wrong answers. A lot of it comes down to the support systems that you have around you. But you know what this is telling you is that you got to think You've got to be deliberate in your thought process, be thorough, uh, and, and make, make good decisions. And again, it's not perfect. It is hard. It's command. I mentioned to you last time, you know, I've got over 14 years of experience in command roles. It's the most satisfying part of my service. 
I, I love every minute of it. Is it hard? Is it challenging? Is it stressful? Absolutely. It's for reasons like this, because this happens every day. <laughs> but I love it. Absolutely love it. Any questions for Sergeant Moore, Ms. Hempstead, or myself? Hey, thanks for coming. I think we had 48 people here again today. Killer. You guys are crushing it. I appreciate the energy and your attention. One hour. All right? Thank you for joining us today. For more information about the 130th Airlift Wing, you can find us online at www.130aw.ang.af.mail. If you have questions about this program or the 130th, you can contact us by email at 130.aw.public.affairs at us.af.mail.